0: at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf.
1: Hi, welcome to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute and a fellow with the International Leadership Association. This podcast is part of a series hosted in conjunction with with the International Leadership Association as part of their 2020 Global Leadership Conference focusing on leading at the edge. At the Innovative Leadership Institute, we help leaders elevate the quality of their leadership and co-create the thriving future they seek. We assist them in navigating the disruptive trends they're facing, developing strategies to elevate themselves and their organizations to continually meet the challenges they face. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the content. With me on the show today, I am delighted to say is Barbara Kellerman. Barbara is the James McGregor Burns Lecturer in Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. She is the founding director of the school's Center for Public Leadership. In 2016, she was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Leadership Association. She's written many books and articles about leadership and followership, most recently Professionalizing Leadership and with Todd Patinsky, Leaders Who Lust, Power, money, sex, success, legitimacy, and legacy. And we'll talk about leaders who lust at the second half of the show. Barbara, thank you for joining us. What do you want our listeners to know about you and your background before we jump in? Thank you, Maureen. I appreciate talking to you. I think we've done this before, and it's lovely to be
2: able to do it again. So thank you very much for having me. So, Maureen, I suppose as an introductory comment, you're correct. I have written Many, many books and articles on leadership, and they range all over the place, and we'll probably touch on some of them, but maybe I should begin by saying that, as anybody who knows my work knows, I tend to be somewhat iconoclastic in various ways. First of all, I look at leadership through probably a broader lens than do many of my, if not most of my, colleagues. That is, I'm as interested in followership as I am in leadership. I'm as interested in bad leadership as I am in good leadership. So, I really cover the range. And some of it is also somewhat controversial. So, I know that you said that you were interested in my comments on the leadership industry. I really started having questions about what I call the leadership industry. That's my sort of catch-all phrase by what has become in the last 30, 40 years, really a massive infusion of courses, programs, institutes, centers, workshops, seminars, you name it, all of which are dedicated largely to teaching people how to lead. I call it an industry because it's actually more often than not a money-making proposition for various of the players. In 2012, and then this came to fruition in a book that came out that I wrote that appeared two years ago called Professionalizing Leadership, where I really explored the ways in which the leadership field did or did not resemble other endeavors that profess to teach people how to do something. Now the professions would include medicine and law and teaching and engineering, obviously, But it also pertains to vocations, truck driving and hairdressing and plumbing and whatever. How do people learn how to do something? And I argued, and again, we can go into this a little bit more if you feel like it, but I argue that leadership does not even begin to resemble the professions or even the vocations that take this learning process seriously. There's one exception to that general rule. Again, I'm not sure how much you want to go into all of this. But again, I have problems, and this does not make me the most popular girl on campus, as you can imagine, but I do have problems with the way we have developed over the last decades in an effort to teach leadership. I think we're doing it less well, indeed considerably less well, than
1: we could if we did things differently. So it was in West Palm Beach at a conference. It was right after a synagogue bombing. And while we were in West Palm, there were some terrorist letters being sent with some poison powder of some sorts. And that terrorist was discovered in West Palm Beach. So it was an interesting week. And you gave the closing presentation at the International Leadership Association. And one of the things you said that really struck me and has stayed with me as one of the most poignant comments from that conversation was, we have more rigorous standards in many cases for our hairdressers and massage therapists than we do for our leaders in substantive industries, including political leaders. And so for our listeners who may also be struggling with this idea I would love to hear more about your perspective, and I understand the not being the most popular girl on campus, and my guess is you don't care. It's a really important topic to discuss.
2: Well, thank you for appreciating my somewhat outlier status. You know, we all want to be appreciated and loved, but if I can't at my stage of life say what I believe to be true, then I'm in trouble. So it's from that, and it's really, I I think, in the interest of those who are in the field of leadership to think about this. So at that conference, Maureen, and thank you for remembering it so vividly, I believe I was talking specifically about standards. So, for example, if you want to be a teacher or a lawyer or, you know, doctor, whatever, you need to take certain courses, certain core curriculum, and you need to demonstrate that you've been properly educated and trained, same actually applies for the the hairdresser or massage therapists or truck drivers. In most states, you cannot be licensed for any of those vocations unless you have demonstrated a certain level of not only expertise, but experience. So with leadership, for reasons that remain entirely unclear to me, at least, no such thing. You know, you take a couple of courses, at Harvard, the business school, or the Kennedy School, or at Stanford, or any of the other countless institutions and centers and institutes, and you say, you know, I've I've taken these courses and I've gone away for a weekend of executive training and it's all great and, and I'm now a leader, but there's no there's no rhyme or reason to the learning process. There's no sequencing. There's no core curriculum, and there most assert there most certainly is no set of standards or credentials or licensing or demonstrating that you have had, that you have had any relevant experience or any, or developed any level of expertise. So I think, you know, again, I'm not sure we want to go into this too much, but I do believe there are reasons why leadership has remained rather, in my view, a disorganized and insufficiently rigorous field of endeavor. I will simply add at this point that if you go all the way back to Plato and and Confucius, the great leadership thinkers, they thought, unlike what we think, that learning how to lead was a lifetime process. Plato didn't think that anybody should be leading until they were about 50 years old, which of course in that day was very old. But the point is that the great leadership thinkers, and I'm very interested, you may know that one of the books I have is actually not mine, and it's a wonderful book, not because of me, but because it consists of the great leadership literature. It's called Leadership Essential Readings on Power, Authority, and Influence, and it's the greats over time. And in there, I have people such as Aristotle and Plato and Confucius and Machiavelli who are timeless, by the way, many other contemporaneous great writers on leadership, but the old ones from way back when, they thought this took years. They, in a million years, wouldn't have imagined you could take a course or go away for an executive training weekend or even two, three months and say, oh, that's going to make you a leader. So we, we have, in my view, failed
1: to take this nearly as seriously or as rigorously as we should. I happen to agree. One of my kind of joking analogies is people who go to a a two-hour-a-month leadership class, I equate that to going to the movies. It's entertainment in many cases. And my partner has recently taken up Tung So Do, a martial arts thing, and he goes to class several nights a week and he practices. And I would equate it to me then spending my evenings watching Chuck Norris shows and thinking I am going to be equally effective at anything other than my rear end spreading as I sit on the sofa. And maybe that's harsh because sitting in a leadership class, of course I should be learning something, but if I'm not then taking it away and applying it, I can talk about leadership. I can't lead any more than I could when I walked into the session. So, Maureen, you're making a very interesting distinction, which I completely agree with. I don't know if you know
2: that you made it, but you did. And the distinction is knowing about leadership and knowing how to lead. Those are two very different things. And in my view, they're actually equally important for the end result. So if you want to be a doctor... You damn well better take an anatomy course before you decide to experiment by slicing into somebody. Do You need to know the human body before you actually work on the human body. I would argue, and I did argue in professionalizing leadership, that learning how to lead is like learning how to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything else. And it involves a three-step process. And you touched on two out of those three. One is you do need to know something about leadership. It's one of the reasons I'm so interested in the great leadership literature, just to give students, and that's really what I do. I'm a leadership educator. So step one, educating students who are interested in knowing how to lead as to what leadership is all about. And that means the extraordinarily interesting and lively and thought-provoking explorations into the history of leadership and followership and power and authority and influence it's really a thrilling endeavor but it is learning about leadership so that's leadership education step one again parallel to the professions get educated step two as you implied different i call it leadership training step one leadership education step two leadership training what is leadership training again it's the kind of thing you implied you may learn on the job, you may learn by going into your community, it depends on your age and your station in life, but you learn by doing and by developing certain skills. It's an entirely different process from learning about leadership. Step one, leadership education, step two, leadership training, and step three is leadership, what I call leadership development. It's a very particular word, but it actually implies developing over a lifetime, just the way if you're a doctor and you graduate in 2021, you're graduating in June of 2021 for medical school, in 100 million years, you would not be expected to know forever how to practice medicine. You are expected to be now a lifelong learner of medicine. Similarly, leading in 2021 is not the same or not going to be the same as it will be in 2025. You need to be a lifelong learner of leadership, just the way you need to be a lifelong learner of learning how to drive a truck or learning how to cut hair or learning how to be a doctor or lawyer. So step one, leadership education, step two, leadership training, and step three, leadership development, which as the word develop implies,
1: means lifelong learning. That's actually why we named our organization the Innovative Leadership Institute, the idea that... If I, like most of us, I have a current mobile phone because they break and they become obsolete. And yet we, many people, obviously you're not in that bucket, but many people think that once they've been dipped in leadership training, they're good to go. And they continue to work from the mental algorithm of whenever they graduated from whatever program they went to. And for some people that's 20 or 30 years ago, And so they become the problem or part of the problem rather than solving problems. And they may continue to learn all kinds of things about their industry, but neglect the fact that as someone who is performing leadership, they need to also continue to develop on the topic where they are functioning as a leader.
2: Yes, 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 and yes. I talk all the time about how leadership and followership change over time. They are not the same now, and I'll give you one screamingly obvious example, which is social media. Social media has changed relations between leaders and followers, and anyone who doesn't get that isn't really paying much attention. So it's important as the context changes, and it's why I'm always talking about what I call the leadership system, which is to not focus laser-like only on the leader, focus equally on the followers and equally on the contexts within which one is embedded. And by paying attention to context, not just to your own development, uh, you know, I think of leadership learning as relatively narcissistic much of the time, oh, my own skills, my own this, my own awareness, my own this and that, but pay attention to followers, pay attention to who you want and your peers and who you want to bring along and pay equal attention, at least as much of attention, to to the context. As you are implying, Maureen, the context changes, and therefore those of us who would be leaders and managers must
1: change along with it. You've hit the topic that I am so passionate about because I see two things. Leaders who, who care, who are in roles, but aren't developing do damage to their own careers, in some cases irreparable, and they damage the people and organizations with whom they work, in some cases to the point that those organizations are no longer in business and those people don't have jobs. So while they will, over time, recover in most cases, the process could be much easier. And I'm not saying that all organizations that fail are bad leadership, you know, especially post-COVID. We're seeing all kinds of things that are happening because of the context. But I would say almost without exception, poor leadership generates worse results than strong leadership.
2: I think you're right, Maureen. And you're also right when you say some things seem to us to be simply beyond our control. And COVID, by the way, speaking of the emphasis on context, which I emphasized, I do point to it all the time, as pay attention, pay attention. COVID, of course, it's so obvious, has affected all of us in the last 10 months or thereabouts, 11 months. And to not pay attention to it, to not ask how COVID is going to or has or will or is now impacting your group or organization is to ignore the importance of context. As you suggest, some of this is beyond our control. We can't change it, but we can change our responses to the changing context. In other words, a high level of awareness, even in the spring, people were out there in February and March and April warning of what this was likely to bring And one would ideally think that a leader who was paying attention to context within which his or her own group or organization or institution was situated would have heard some of those alarm bells going off. There were plenty of them, even early this year, just because the administration was often not paying attention doesn't mean that if you're leading a group in Columbus, Ohio, or in Hartford, Connecticut, you shouldn't be paying attention. So this alertness to context of which COVID is an extremely good example as it happens, I think cannot be overestimated. It's quite different from leadership development, meaning this meaning, uh, when I say development now, I mean the self. You can have all the skills in the world. You can be the greatest decision maker and negotiator and communicator, but if COVID is coming at you and you're not really noticing well ahead of when
1: it's going to affect the people in your organization, no matter how skilled you are, you're gonna run into trouble. It seems that you're also pointing to the complexity of being a good leader, that I need to have all of those skills and they need to be evolving. And And I guess you said it as well as anyone could, my awareness of the context, which for me also means trends. What are the scenarios we are likely to face Given that we live in a world that is more volatile and harder to predict, I now have to be looking at scenarios. I talked to my financial planner this morning, and she said there are some predictions the economy is going to get better, there are some it's going to get worse, and there are some it's going to stay the same. So now we have to plan your investments, given that we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Good
2: financial planning, by the way, does exactly that. It is it is preparing for various, not very different, by the way, from leaders or proper paying attention to context generally, which is to prepare for various scenarios. But to pay attention, you know, we use the phrase now risk management much more than we used to. Some of this is as simple as risk management. But again, most leadership training is focused on the self. Make yourself better and it's going to be just fine. Once you learn how to communicate well, as I said earlier, and negotiate well, it's going to be great. Well, it's going to be great if simultaneously... You're paying attention to everybody around you and simultaneously you're paying attention to the context within which you and those around you are embedded. Focusing 80% of the time on the self is not, in my
1: view, a good recipe for learning how to lead. What percentage would you spend? And I'm thinking about specifically how our training is designed. I write trends articles and all that stuff, but I don't know that I build in enough of it to what I teach people. So uh, to be, I don't mean to simplify this too much,
2: Maureen, but I'm going to give you an answer because the answer I tell my students, I just finished teaching a course at the Kennedy School. The title of the course is Leadership System, Leaders, Followers, and Context. And I've written about this extensively. Mm-hmm. I never write anymore or speak anymore without referencing the system to which I referred earlier. So my answer is actually a third, a third, and a third. I'm not suggesting that people who want to learn how to lead neglect themselves. I am suggesting, however, that they should give themselves no more equal time than they should give, I'll use the term followers, which some people object to and we could have a conversation about that too, but I'm going to use it because it's the natural obverse in English, subordinates, direct reports, constituents, whatever word you want to use. Sometimes it's peers, sometimes it's board. sometimes it's the press, sometimes in the public. It's the public so i'm just referring to those you need to bring on board if you're not going to meet resistance at every turn so for the sake of this conversation i'll call them followers so a third on the leaders a third on all those other people out there who you have to watch out for lest they're going to do you in even if they don't mean to they're going to resist you it's hard now to lead in liberal democracies and i don't just mean politically that's a whole, again, another subject we could go into, the similarities between the private and the public sectors. And then a third on the context. So a broad answer is a third on the on self. Pay attention to yourself and all the other things that we suggested and that you would know at least as well as me. Second is pay attention to everyone around you. Close attention. Do not neglect them or you're going to be screwed, if I can use that word. <laughs> and finally, pay attention to The contexts, by that I mean plural, the unit, the group, the organization, the industry, the larger culture, the political context within which we're operating, all of them pertain. So, a third, a third, and a third. Think of it systemically, but again, this is not
1: complex. It's not rocket science. It's leaders, followers, and contexts roughly equal. We do... You know, I become self-aware and I do all that stuff. And within every module, we have people answer questions about what do I think and believe? What do I do? What does my culture support? Am I moving toward it or away from it? And what do the systems and processes do and support? Am I moving moving them forward or am I making myself less attractive? Because when I started teaching about 20 years ago, MBA students, they all wanted to get promoted when they got their MBA. Yeah. And they hadn't considered that the context being the organization may or may not value that degree that they've just gotten. And in fact, could be moving themselves further away from the attractive category. So it just seems like as people grow and change, the downsides is in some cases their marriages fall apart, they on and on. The agreements they had when they went in are upended as they change how they see the world.
2: Yeah, your informal comment just now, Maureen, suggests the complexity of this. It suggests why you can't take a couple of courses and call yourself a leader. It suggests why you can't go away for a couple of weeks and say, I was at a two week executive training, it was so great, I feel transformed. I'm not diminishing those experiences, mm-hmm. I'm saying they're not enough. I'm not saying they're, they're not valuable, I'm saying they're not enough. I wanna just add one more comment to this. As I indicated professionalizing leadership, there is one American, I'm talking about the United States now, institution, if you will, that in my view does leadership learning, that is education, training, and development quite well, or even in many cases, very well, and that's the American military. And I wish, I just wish the civilian sector including the great universities and academies, would look at what the military does and how they do it. They do do, again, education, training, development, they do it lifelong. There is a reason the American military remains actually the only institution Americans still trust. We don't trust even religious leaders and educational leaders that much anymore, not to speak of business leaders, political leaders, whom we tend not to trust at all anymore. But the military is an exception to that general rule, and I have argued with as much energy as I can muster that there is a reason for that, and it's because they do leadership learning really well. Not saying it's perfect, but it's remarkably strong and sturdy compared to what we generally do in the civilian sector.
1: Thank you for that observation. And I want to give kind of a call out to our veterans who have served our country incredibly faithfully and to the employers who could hire them when they exit military service because that transition is often very difficult and given what you just said maybe unnecessarily difficult that those skills can actually translate maybe not easily but effectively
2: absolutely and and again so you know we don't have a draft anymore and therefore a tiny fraction of the American people have had any exposure to the military, it's not they don't serve in the American military, they don't have in their families anybody who's ever served in the military. It's a most unfortunate divide in contemporaneous American life between civilian life and military life. But ironically, the leadership field would be a fabulous bridge between them,
1: but it is being hardly used as that at all. Hmm. On that note, we're going to take a break and encourage our listeners during this break to think about where do you look as the role model for effective leadership? Do you have people in your family who are in the military, are physicians, are politicians? And are those people that you're looking to for effective leadership actually what Barbara would call effective? Or are they just people in jobs that have leadership titles? We'll be right back. This is Barbara Kellerman and Maureen Metcalf, innovating leadership, co-creating our future.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
1: Barbara Kellerman, and let's shift our focus to Barbara's recent book, Leaders Who Lust, Power, Money, Sex, Success, Legitimacy, and Legacy. Barbara, can you tell us about the book, why you wrote the book, why people should read the book? Thanks, Maureen. Yes, sure. We can talk a little bit about
2: it. Leaders Who Lust is looking at a phenomenon that describes exceptional leaders, leaders who stand out. I am not arguing, and I've written this book with Todd Patinsky, it's not an argument that every single great leader or exceptional leader is a lustful leader. But a lot of leaders who lust are indeed very, very extraordinary, and they accomplish for better and worse, by the way. When I say accomplish, I don't necessarily mean all for the good. So, what do we mean when we say lust? You know, we've heard a lot, certainly in social psychology, for decades about there's a need to achieve and a need to have power and a need to be liked. So, the word lust, and we define it in the book, which I, I won't read it here, but the definition makes very clear, this is not about a need. It is about an appetite or a hunger or a drive that is so fierce that it is unstoppable. So let me give you a quote at the very beginning of this conversation to illustrate what I mean. Winston Churchill was talking to Parliament in 1938, trying to warn his government and trying to warn the British people more broadly that the Nazis, that Hitler, were a force to be reckoned with and that England should arm to prepare. He was unsuccessful, and in general, the British people paid no attention until, indeed, the Nazis marched into Poland in September 1939. But the line that Churchill used exemplifies perfectly what we mean when we say lust, and the line is, Churchill, saying of Hitler in 1938, Hitler's appetite grows with eating. In other words, the more Hitler ate, look, he marched and had marched already into Czechoslovakia, he had already marched into Austria and effectively taken it over. The more he ate, the hungrier he got. That's what lust is. Again, power, money, sex, success, legitimacy, and legacy. A leader who lusts, the more power he or she has, the more success, the more sex, the more money. We can go down the list. The hungrier they get. It is why it is a force that is so extraordinary, why these people stand out. And the last thing I'll say at this point, Maureen, is it is a descriptive book. I'm very interested in describing, as I indicated earlier when I said I'm as interested in bad leadership as I am in good leadership. I am as interested, and I think it's as important for anyone who's interested in leadership, to understand not the world not as we would wish it to be but understand the world as it is. So a leader who lusts for power, money, success, whatever, can be a good leader. That lust can be used toward good ends, but not necessarily. Power, money, all of those things, they can be used toward good ends, but they are not necessarily. So there is in leaders who lust, there is no value judgment. It is a book of description I wouldn't call them cases. There are stories. There, it, there's a cast, a large cast of characters. Well, not that large, 12 people. As I wrote the book, I told stories about them. And they are kind of lively, if I may say so, lively, interesting stories. It is, again, as I said earlier in my comments, not just about the leaders per se. It is about those who followed them or enabled them. So I'll give you one very American example, and it's about sex, It's about John F. Kennedy, who, in a CNN special of a few weeks ago on Jacqueline Kennedy, was described in a way that we never dreamt in the 1960s or even 70s or maybe even 80s. Nowadays, the parlance might be sex addict. John Kennedy did not just have another woman with whom he was romantically or sexually involved other than his wife. That would not have particularly distinguished him from other leaders who have that. He had an incessant lead to have sex. It's documented in the book. What I'm pointing out is that he was enabled in this. It was made possible for him to do this in the White House, of course that wouldn't be possible today, by his followers, by people who made it possible for him to indulge his appetite, if it's the right word. So my point is, whatever your lust is, if you're a leader who lusts and you're unable to realize that lust, it's not just you, it is the people around you for better and worse. Again, for better and worse. In some cases, at the end, we talk about, you know, leaders who lust for things that are ended up being for the common good. So this is not just self-indulgence, but they have in common that they are appetites that are unquenchable till they're dead, until they can't anymore for or they stop stopped for some external reason. So leaders who lust, by definition, are never satisfied. Leaders who lust, by definition, are neither good or bad. We need to look at them as separate cases with different
1: outcomes. You just answered one of my questions. How can you have in the list as equal legacy and sex and money? If I were to put a value judgment on it, I would depending on if I agreed with the legacy they wanted to lead. So I'm working with a cancer researcher right now and his legacy, he hopes is significant movement in curing cancer. That's a legacy that assuming he's not also full of other issues is one that could make him a brilliant leader different than someone whose primary lust is sex and money.
2: Maureen, it depends. So under money, We have, again, two characters, in this case, two men, one a man by the name of Warren Buffett, and the other a man by the name of Charles Koch. So Warren Buffett, as everybody listening to us almost certainly knows, has never wanted money for its own sake. He's famous for having lived an extremely simple life. His tastes are very plain, ordinary, whether in food or in housing or in clothing. And he has given, by this point, most of his money away, much of it to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and also to his family and other good causes, but mainly to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You could say that his lust for money had a good outcome because he gave so much money to this foundation that is obviously intended to cure diseases and help education, so forth and so on. Now, a man by the name of Charles Koch, the other example, He's equally interested in money and he's equally interestingly committed. His commitment is to politics. Specifically, he has poured gabillions into trying to continue fossil fuels, into supporting the fossil fuel industry. He is a libertarian, very interested, as I said, in politics, but his politics are totally different from Warren Buffett's. Warren Buffett's are famously relatively liberal Charles, coaches are famously relatively conservative or extremely conservative. Now, how you judge these two people depends on, you know, as the usual, where you stand depends on where you sit. So I'm not rendering a judgment on Buffett or on Coach. I'm pointing out, we're pointing out that they have had a lifelong lust for money, which In neither case, they're both men in their 80s now. In neither case does it show the slightest sign of stopping. It will never stop until these men just can't anymore. They don't need the money. That's not about need. And they are using it for very different purposes. So no value judgment, not even with regard to sex, although we can look at it and go, oh, my God, what's going on here? But we're not in the business of making judgments We're in the business of pointing to a phenomenon that is, and that happens to be very important to anyone who's interested in leadership, especially if that leadership is not ordinary, but is indeed extraordinary.
1: So we have about three minutes left. What do you want our listeners to take away? You've written about so many topics, and at this point in your career, you chose this book. So this must be really important to you. Why should listeners go buy the book? Among other things, I think
2: it's a really good read. And I think every book should be a good read. What do I mean by that? I mean, in this case, educate not only educational, but entertaining. So again, this particular book points to a phenomenon that no one else has pointed out. And if you want to explain great leadership, and by the way, Joe Biden is in there. Donald Trump is in there. Let me correct myself. They're not in there. Trump is referenced, but only briefly, and Biden is not in there. I've written about him in many of my blogs. Biden is a luster, too. He's wanted to succeed since he was a kid. He told the mother of his future bride when he was in his 20s, or teens even, that he wanted to be president of the United States. As you know, Maureen, he ran three times. This man has lusted for success, and by that I mean the very top, the brass ring, as it were all his life. So even though he comes across as being kind of, you know, an ordinary fellow, in fact, he has been driven to succeed since a very young age. Not every president is like that. I can, you know, if we had more time, I'd name a bunch bunch of leaders who are not like that, but Biden happens to be. Now, just to bring you up to date, in the last year, I finished yet another book. That book will come out in 2021. It is my pandemic book. I call it my pandemic book. And it is, I will simply say that the focus of the book is on Trump's followers. I don't just mean the base, I mean the whole mosaic of his followers. So in my concluding sentence, I will simply say as before, leadership is the most extraordinarily interesting topic. It's incredibly important but never simplify it by looking only at the leader. Look at the whole picture and you will understand why the world works the way it does, why liberal democracy in the 21st century has run into some trouble. It's hard to lead in liberal democracies. And by the way, there's also an answer as to why there are more autocracies, because the autocrats, whether it's Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin, or Erdogan in Turkey, or Sisi in Egypt, they understand that unless they're more repressive than they have been before, their followers will demand more and they are in danger of losing control. So as I always tell my students and my audiences, everything is connected to everything else, but in leadership in a way that is intellectually as well as practically not only important, but endlessly interesting.
1: As are you. Thank you. This has just been a brilliant trip through a range of leadership topics. I wish we could do it for much longer, but I realize that is not possible today. Hopefully next year we will do the next installment and talk about your pandemic book because I would love to hear more about why followers make those choices, specifically what a
2: great and incredibly important question, Maureen. So thank you very much for your time and interest. I wish you well. Everybody now says, we didn't used to say it. Now we go, stay well, take care of yourself. So Maureen, stay well and take good care of
1: yourself. Thank you, Barbara. And you as well. Stay safe and have fun doing this. We always try. Thank you for investing your precious time with us today. We're delighted to share the wisdom from the International Leadership Association 2020 Global Leadership Conference, Leading at the Edge. We encourage you to join for additional conversations. Please bookmark this podcast, subscribe, like it, share it with your friends and colleagues. Most importantly, thank you for focusing on elevating your own leadership and making an impact in the world today.
0: Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.